Hello there. Welcome to the show. I know it's been quite a while. I want to say it's about almost two months since my last episode I did with Nick about Horizon Zero Dawn, but I have been crazy busy with my school. It's a good sign for me if I don't have time to do this because that means I'm actually doing things that I'm supposed to. So I finished up my pediatric rotation and the last four weeks of that were really busy just because being on inpatient, I was have to be I had to be there for 12 hours every day. Now I'm on surgery and I've done one week of pink, which was breast surgery, and then one week of trauma, which was just being there from six till six on call. And if the buzzer goes off, then we run to the trauma bay and um, see what we can do. I mean, I don't have that important of a job. The most I did was stitch someone up, but mostly my job was to cut the clothes off the patient and then get blankets. So a vital job that's needed. Um, If you don't have a medical student during a trauma, it's just a complete disaster. No one knows how to get the clothes off. Okay, that's not actually true because my actually first trauma, like eight people pulled out scissors and everyone was cutting off the clothes. And I was like, why am I even here? But it's been a good experience. Um, This week I am on nights, which is basically trauma just at night. So I go in at six o'clock and I stay till six in the morning. I will be starting my first day today, so I figured I could do an episode before I leave. I was just thinking about some of the stuff I should talk about before I um, start my night's week. Since my last episode, a lot has happened. Natalie officially graduated from PA school and she passed her pants exam, so now she is an official PAC, which is very exciting. Along with finishing up my pediatrics rotation, I started my surgery rotation, so after surgery I only have one rotation left which would be family medicine and then I take my step two exam and then I start my fourth year so this is all moving very rapidly I'm really looking forward to being done with my third year because once I'm into my fourth year uh, I'll be able to be on rotations that I've specifically chosen as opposed to you know being forced to like see a bunch of stuff which is fine because I think it's really good in the long run I can look back on my OB rotation and my psych rotation and my surgery rotation and you know see what's useful and I honestly you do learn a lot just being on the floor and experiencing things that you wouldn't normally see but I really need to work on OB for step two I just something about it doesn't stick in my brain not as much the um the baby's part I'm I'm okay with that it's more the gynecological problems I just it's just I don't know what it is. It doesn't stick in my head and I've learned it so many times and I always do poorly on that. In non-medicine related news, the new Monster Hunter game came out and I have been playing that when I get the opportunity, which is not as much as I would like. So some point in the future, I'd like to do a review on that. I'm potentially going to ask Andrew, my second cousin by marriage, if he would want to do a sort of discussion about that because he also got that and we've been playing it a little bit together um it's really good but again i don't have as much time to play it as much as i'd like so that'll have to be put on the back burner for a little bit i think for now i think my main focus on this show is going to be more on medicine just because i've been changing the way that i study a little bit and it might make it more conducive for me to talk about different topics so what i've been doing is trying to go through all the different questions so for pediatrics you know you have five or six hundred questions that you want to go through and I've been making slides on every question that I get wrong and then clarifications on some of the questions that I get right but I have more questions on and so I've made 
several PowerPoints of over 150 slides detailing different problems that or different subjects that I've had difficulty with or things that I need to work on and or learn. So I figured in this episode, I would go through some of the surgery slides that I've made. It's only week three of surgery and I already have a PowerPoint that has 133 slides. So there's definitely a lot for me to learn. Surgery is interesting because there's a lot more, uh, I don't want to say like physical because all medicine is physical, but there's a lot of musculoskeletal, maybe that's a better way to put it, problems that you have to learn and or remember from first year. And that's not something I'm great at just because it a lot of it requires root minimization of anatomy. So the one that always gets me is the brachial plexus, which is a collection of nerves in your armpit that is responsible for controlling all of the movements in your arm. So a lot of, um, then this was more heavily focused on step one, but a lot of the questions involving the brachial plexus involve, okay, a person had this type of injury. What are they going to be able to do or not do with this hand? Um, so there's a lot more questions about bones breaking and, and nerves being trapped or arteries that are being blocked. And then obviously with surgery, you have a lot of uh, GI problems, how to treat certain GI manifestations, diverticulitis, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. But instead of treating it from the medicine perspective, you're treating it from a surgery perspective, which is a much more hands-on, go get them, kind of we go in and we fix the problem and then we get out. Or the person is here and they're unstable hemodynamically. So what do you do next? Um, so what I've been finding is that it's a very algorithmic based learning where if you don't know what to do then you have to think is this person hemodynamically stable or are they not if they are then maybe we should get more imaging and if they're not then we probably need to do surgery right now to figure out if they're bleeding what's the problem and so on and so forth before i get started talking about specific surgery questions that i've gotten wrong um, I was thinking about the fact that the other day, Natalie and I went to the beach this Saturday and we went out to like this very run down restaurant that looked like a shady place, but it had really cheap food. And the way that they sat you was that you just would pick a table. So we picked a big table that was open and then we had some people ask if they could sit next to us. And so while we were kind of talking to them, they asked like what we did. And I said, I was in medical school and the husband was like, so what are you studying right now? And I never know how to answer that question because like, I don't want to be like, oh, duh, I'm studying medicine because, you know, that's not really what he's asking. But what I should have said was I'm in surgery right now. I didn't. I just explained that I was in my third year. But I also realized that if I say like, oh, I'm in surgery, it makes it sound like I'm actually doing surgery, which third year medical students, the most they get to do is sew up something or hold a clamp. But it does sound like, oh, I'm in surgery right now. But in reality, it's like I'm not anywhere close to doing surgery. They would never let me touch a human, probably. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. So what I'm going to start out talking about is something that's called cardiac tamponade. Now, this isn't necessarily a trauma-related issue, but it can be caused by trauma. Um, there's two different types of cardiac tamponade, um, and one is more likely caused by trauma and the other one is more or it can be caused by multiple things but um cardiac tamponade is when you get fluid that accumulates in the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart so your heart is surrounded by this bag that's the pericardium and um when i did my anatomy class back in freshman year we 
cut open the chest and we got to the heart and the pericardium is like a very it's like a vacuum sealed bag over the heart basically it's not just like it's someone tossed a heart in a ziploc bag and that's your um pericardium it's very very close to the heart and it's you it functions as a way to decrease friction on the heart and it also kind of keeps the heart in place but cardiac tamponade is when you get fluid accumulation in that sac so you get fluid accumulating between the heart and the pericardium so normally there's no space between it. i mean there's like a small amount of space but there's not a ton of space between it if you were to hold the heart like we did you would realize that you really can't you really can't tell like you really can't tell there's any space between that's how close it is to it but there's two different types of cardiac tamponade there's an acute cardiac tamponade and then there's subacute which i assume they just mean it's not acute so acute occurs in minutes to hours where subacute can be days to weeks so one of the clinical signs that you kind of have to know it's called bex triad um, and bex triad is hypotension so low blood pressure jvd which means or which stands for jugular venous distension so there's a vein in your neck the jugular vein and if you have venous distension, it means that there's backup in the right ventricle or the right atrium. So it's pushing blood back up so that you can see it sort of pulsating up in your neck. And there's a certain way to do it, um, like where you have to lay the patient down and then have them sit up or put them at a certain angle and stuff. I've never done it with a real patient. I've only done it on um, like the practice patients that we had. Um, and then the last one is muffled heart sounds. So if you listen to the heart, they'll sound distant or they're far away. And the reason why you have all of these problems, hypotension, you have low blood pressure because your heart is not able to beat because there's this fluid that's accumulating in between that space and it's sort of compressing the heart. Uh, the same reason why you'll have the venous distension is because the heart can't beat and push the blood out. The blood is backing up. And then obviously the muffled heart sounds are just due to the fact that there's um, fluid or something in between the pericardium and the heart so that when you listen to it with a stethoscope, there's you're, you're listening through more material. So obviously it's going to be a decreased. Um, so the difference between Acute and subacute has to do with one, the incident that causes the cardiac tamponade. So in acute, generally, it's going to be some sort of trauma, whereas in subacute, it can be something like a malignancy. Um, so it's a slower, pro uh, a slower process. But the acute and subacute present slightly differently because the acute presentation of cardiac tamponade involves a small amount of fluid like 100 to 200 milliliters filling that cardiac that um, pericardial space when that happens the pericardium doesn't really get a chance to stretch out so you see the results of that compression on the heart much quicker whereas if it's a subacute it's going to be a lot slower infiltrating process where this fluid is slowly leaking into that pericardium pericardium has time to stretch out in order to accommodate that fluid so you don't see the results as quickly so i got a question wrong because i didn't realize it was cardiac tamponade because when they looked at the chest x-ray they said oh the there's a normal cardiac silhouette the cardiac the heart does not look enlarged and that is a sign of an acute 
cardiac tamponade so that there's only a small amount of fluid in there. It's still compressing the heart because the pericardium hasn't had time to stretch. But the when you look at it on x-ray, the heart looks a normal size because there's not this huge amount of fluid in there compared to a subacute where you have one to two liters of fluid in there. So when you look at the x-ray, you're going to see this enlarged sort of globular cardiac silhouette. And that silhouette shows, okay, you know, there's obviously some infiltrating process in here where the heart looks like it's obstructed by something. Now, obviously, I should have just recognized Beck's triad, but I think I was thinking more along the lines of heart failure in that situation um, because you do get similar problems, but um, I won't make that mistake again. Treatment generally involves what's called a pericardiocentesis, and that's where you stick a needle into the pericardium and you draw off that fluid. Um, and of course, if it's an acute cause, say you had blunt trauma to the chest that ruptured your aorta, and that is what the, is filling the pericardium, the blood from the aorta, obviously you're going to need emergent surgery to fix that. But depending on the situation, um, you could be a little bit more lax on the timing of, of when you're going to fix it. And I'm sure with subacute, it depends on like the process that caused it. So if it's a malignancy, obviously you want to find out about the cancer and then move from that perspective um, as opposed to just cutting them open and going in, you know, going to town on that. So another syndrome that is similar in its mechanism in terms of it's compressing something um, but I think it's more of a surgical problem. Like I had not learned about abdominal compartment syndrome, which is what I'm going to talk about now until I was on surgery. I'm sure that I like heard about it. I just didn't really learn that much about it. Whereas Beck's triad and um, the cardiac tamponade is something that you do learn about pretty consistently. But abdominal compartment syndrome is caused by increased in intra-abdominal pressure, which causes organ dysfunction. So some of the risk factors for like what causes this would be um, massive fluid resuscitation. So if a patient has had a trauma and loss of blood and you just slam them with a ton of fluids to keep their blood pressure up, uh, that can cause it. Um, you can have obviously surgery um, on the abdominal cavity can cause it. And then uh, intra abdominal fluid collections. So if you're bleeding into your abdomen, not a good sign. Or if you have ascites, which is um, a process by which you have fluid being pushed out of the peritoneum due to generally I think of um, liver dysfunction due to alcohol overuse so your liver gets really hard and the venous system that flows to the liver is backed up and that forces fluid to sort of be pushed out into the peritoneum and then you get this uh, sort of giant belly that has to be drained sometimes depending on how large the problem is so what you would see with a patient who has this abdominal compartment syndrome is you'd have a tense distended abdomen. Um, you'd have increased ventilatory requirements. So if the patient is on the ventilator, it's going to appear as if they need more work with the, like the ventilator is going to be need to doing more work to help them. Um, you're going to have an increase in the central venous pressure because the venous, there's going to be venous compression due to that abdominal pressure. Um, but you'll have decreased venous return to the heart because you're pressing all these veins down due to this increased pressure. You can have hypotension, tachycardia, hypotension due to the fact that you're not returning blood to the heart. The tachycardia, which is increased heart rate, is due to the fact that your body is trying to get blood to the rest of the heart. And if there's low volume, if you're hypotensive, then your blood or your heart's going to start beating faster in order to try to push out more fluid or more blood. And then you're going to have decreased urine output, um, and that could just be to decreased intra-abdominal organ perfusion you're just not getting as much fluid to like your kidneys in certain areas 
Um, so management would definitely be avoid over resuscitation. So it's like if you find out that this patient is having this compartment syndrome, this abdominal compartment syndrome, you also don't want to slam them with fluids because that could be a bad thing because it will just increase the problem. Um, you could drain the volume. So get an NG tube and drain some of the fluid from their stomach and then drain fluid collections. And then the definitive management would be surgical decompression, um, which I have never seen that, so I can't really speak that much of it. But if there was a, question, a test question that asked me about how to treat it, I could say surgical decompression, and then they give me the points as opposed to making me do it, which, you know, that would never happen. Just flipping through my PowerPoint of various questions that I got wrong, I found one that was pretty interesting, and I don't know how common this is and or if it ever happens. It's just like the perfect question. But it was a patient who, this is the question, the patient um, had gone on a flight or a trip somewhere, and then he's presented to the hospital with left, up, left upper quadrant pain, so um, like kind of right under his stomach, I think. And um, on his labs, he has reticulocytosis, which means that he is making a lot of new red blood cells. And then he also has elevated indirect bilirubin, which generally, if you have elevated indirect bilirubin, that means that you're having destruction of the, you're having increased destruction of red blood cells because the bilirubin path is very complicated. It, it involves breaking down of red blood cells and hemoglobin, and that sort of creates this indirect bilirubin, which is you know bound to all these different proteins. And then you conjugate the bilirubin in your liver, and it becomes direct bilirubin, and then you get rid of that in your digestive tract. So if someone has high indirect bilirubin, it's due to something that's not involved with the liver. It's outside of the liver. Um, and then in this question, I think they said that the patient had a wedge-shaped infarct on ultrasound. And so I had no, I don't had no idea what this this was when I read the question because I saw the ultrasound and it looked like an infarct on his, or I think it was a X-ray that they gave me. I don't or a CT. I'm not, I don't think it was an ultrasound because I'm really really bad with ultrasounds, but. Apparently, people who have the sickle cell trait, so not sickle cell disease, they don't have the full-on disease, but they have the trait, which can manifest itself in some ways. It's not nearly as bad as sickle cell disease, but they can have these splenic infarctions when they fly at high altitudes. Now, I don't know what the flying at high altitudes does that causes, maybe there's an increase in oxygen demand. I think he was just in a regular plane. It's not like he was skydiving, but maybe there this increase in oxygen demand or this change in pressure somehow caused the cells that have this issue to um, sickle, which caused a wedge, like a blocking in the arteries in the spleen, which then causes an infarction, aka you can't get blood into the spleen. Um, and this can be caused by dehydration as well. Um, but I thought that was a really weird question. It's like someone who has the sickle cell trait flies on a plane, and then that can cause them to have a splenic infarction due to the sickling of these cells. It's like, I don't know how often this is seen, but I definitely got that question wrong. So one of the things that's very different about second year, or not second year, um, step two compared to step one, is that step one is much more based on the pathology and the physiology of how it works, whereas step two is very much more based on how you treat it and how you go about diagnosing. So a lot of the times you'll have these algorithms that I mentioned earlier that you'll kind of follow. So one question that I got wrong, it was a really stupid question for me to get wrong because it kind of just makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Or if I thought I had thought about it correctly, I think I easily could have gotten it right. But I was trying to 
think I'd thought way too far into it. So it was a patient that came in and they had a nodule on their thyroid. And there's a certain pathway that you follow after you find a thyroid nodule, um, which the thyroid is hard to palpate. It's right. Um, it's on your, it's like midline on your, tra around your trachea and you have to make the patient swallow and you can feel it when they swallow. I obviously haven't spent a lot of time or practice doing that, um, which I've also never palpated a thyroid that has a nodule or that is enlarged. So if you've only palpated something that's normal, it's hard to know what you're doing. It's not until you palpate or feel or see or listen to something that's abnormal that you could compare it to what the normal thing is. And that's how you really learn. So anyway, the first thing I thought was, oh, we get an ultrasound of this uh, nodule, but that wasn't one of the answers in the question. And so I think I picked some random thing. I, it was not anywhere necessary, but the first thing I should have done was get a TSH. So TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone. Um, it's released from the pituitary gland and its job is to basically tell the body or tell the thyroid that, hey, you need to make thyroid. Thyroid stimulating hormone tells the thyroid to make hormone. Thyroid hormones kind of makes sense. Um, there's a lot of things that are named like that. And then you have this other stuff that's just like completely named random stuff and you don't know why. So what you're supposed to do is if you've felt a thyroid nodule, you're supposed to get a TSH level and a thyroid ultrasound. So I was correct in the fact that you should get an ultrasound, but that wasn't one of the answers. They wanted me to check the TSH, which I should have chosen that. That just was obvious. It's like, oh, they have a thyroid nodule. The reason why I didn't choose TSH was because I was overthinking it and the patient wasn't presenting with any problems of hypo or hyperthyroidism, which is normally when you get a TSH. Obviously, it can be used for other things, such as in this case. But um, I was thinking, oh, well, they're not having any problems with their thyroid, so maybe it's not related to their thyroid, which is stupid because it's a question. It's not trying to trick me. They're just trying to teach me how to evaluate these nodules. So if you have low TSH, then what you do is, so that's saying that hey, your pituitary gland is not secreting TSH. And the reason is because maybe the thyroid is already producing thyroid hormone, and so it's kind of sending negative feedback up to the pituitary and saying, hey, you don't need to release any of this thyroid-stimulating hormone because we've got thyroid everywhere. We're good. we got thyroid hormone everywhere. So after that, what you do is what's called a radioactive iodine scintigraphy. And what that is looking for is that is looking for the functioning of the thyroid. So iodine is used in the creation of thyroid hormone. So if you use this radioactive iodine, you can do a uh, scan where you see the different parts of the thyroid light up when they um, take in that iodine to create thyroid hormone. So there's two things that you can get from this. If the nodule is hot, aka it lights up, it's accepting that iodine, that means that that thyroid nodule is producing thyroid hormone. It's just more thyroid. It's functioning like the thyroid should, but there's more of it because you have this nodule. And if that's the case, then what you're probably going to do is you're going to treat hyperthyroidism because this patient is probably, I'm assuming that they're going to be making more thyroid. So you want to treat that. You want to um, reduce the amount of thyroid that they have, which you can use multiple different drugs that block the production of thyroid um, in order to treat their issues. If you have a cold nodule, which is so when you give them this radioactive iodine, that, that nodule that you see doesn't light up. So what that means is that this part of the thyroid is not producing thyroid hormone. And this is when you're going to be thinking it's probably cancer. So a hot nodule is more 
is a better prognosis than a cold nodule. So if you have a cold nodule, then what you're going to want to do is you're going to get a fine needle aspiration, which is basically where you get a needle and you stick it in the nodule and you pull out the material that's in that nodule and then you look at it under a microscope. Obviously, the pathologist will be the one looking at it and telling you if it's cancer, if it's just regular thyroid tissue, if it's just a thyroid adenoma, and then you kind of go from there. So that's if you get a low TSH. If you get a normal or elevated TSH on the patient, then you instantly go straight to the fine needle aspiration um, to see what this thyroid nodule is. So this is just one of the very many algorithms that they like us to learn. This one is pretty short, all things considered. There's only a few methods that you can go. But if you don't talk about these things and you don't um, do them, it's really hard to remember them because there's a lot, the patient doesn't present with like a, oh, I have thyroid nodule, now what? You know, it's like, it's much more complicated than that. And they also might have other issues that you could be kind of confusing with it, like I did, obviously, and think too hard about the question and then get it wrong. And or in the case of actually seeing a patient, you don't want to miss something like this. Um, but I think that comes from practice and from, you know, seeing patients and, and learning how to question them to get why they're there or the problems that they've been having. My problem when I'm talking about this stuff is that I want to talk about the things that I know, and I feel like that's not a good thing because I don't need to learn those things. So I figured I would talk about something that I had a really difficult time understanding only because it's very heavily based on physiology, and I will try my best to explain it. But the patient is like a 50-year-old man who had loss of consciousness from standing, and then they recovered spontaneously but was very weak. Um, Generally, when you have a sort of syncope episode or someone who falls unconscious, the first thing you want to know is how were they when they woke up? So if they were confused, they didn't know where they were, they wouldn't know who they were. Generally, you're going to be thinking of some sort of seizure activity. So that is what you call a post-ictal state. I don't know if I've mentioned that before in other episodes, but if the patient doesn't have a post-ictal state, then you're going to be thinking it's probably something related to the heart or it could be just vasovagal syncope if they stood up too fast or if they got really nervous or if they were in a C-section and they realized they didn't know why they were there and then they thought they were going to pass out, so they sat down before they fell on top of the uh, patient. Um, that was me. But the next thing is after he had this spontaneous recovery after his loss of consciousness, he was having uh, left-sided chest pain. Um, his vitals were low, so he had, or his blood pressure was low, his pulse was really high, and he was diaphoretic and tachypnic. So he was sweating a lot, and he was breathing very quickly. So the question was, what would this, what would a further workup show? So I don't think I had any idea what he had. Now, if they had just said chest pain with uh, tachycardia, so increased heart rate, I would have instantly thought, a new or a um, pulmonary embolism, which is when you get a blockage of blood or a embolism that breaks off from somewhere and it goes and sticks in your vessels in your uh, lungs. So you get a part of the lung that can't get perfused. So you get this chest pain, your heart beats really fast and uh, it can be very dangerous. But I didn't even consider it in this question. I think maybe because the loss of consciousness kind of threw me off. So I was thinking more cardiac and they were kind of asking what was wrong what would the workup show? And the answer was right ventricular dysfunction. 
So I was like, I have no idea what they're talking about. So what this is, this is a massive pulmonary embolism, which can present as or can present with syncope and hemodynamic collapse or like super low blood pressure. So what happens is you have an abrupt increase in the pulmonary vascular resistance. So that's because you have a giant blockage in your pulmonary vessels the blood that's trying to get into the lungs to be oxygenated can't because there's this giant blockage there. So that means that the right heart, which pumps blood into the lungs, gets backed up. So you have increase in the right ventricular pressure. I don't know if this makes sense to anyone because it barely makes sense to me. The elevated right ventricular pressure causes an increase in just like the tension in the right ventricle and it stretches the cardiac muscles out and the right ventricle gets pretty big. Now this just makes sense because it's sort of like a pipe. If you have a blockage in the pipe, the water's gonna back up, the water's gotta go somewhere. In this case, it's backing up into the heart and because the heart isn't just a pipe, it's stretchable and it's compliant, it can get bigger and it can um, get messed up. In this case, it's dilating. So the increase in size and the increase in work that the right ventricle has to do leads to increased oxygen demand because obviously the heart needs oxygen to work if it's working harder because there's this backup in the lungs due to the fact that you have a massive pulmonary embolism i don't know how they define massive pulmonary embolism like i don't know if there's like because he has hypotension that means it's a massive pulmonary embolism i don't know you could ask a real doctor um so with this increase in oxygen demand there is decreased coronary artery perfusion so that's coronary arteries provide oxygen to the heart because the right ventricle ventricle is working overtime. It's trying to get more oxygen, but it can't, um, which causes right ventricular ischemia. So that leads to right ventricular dysfunction, which leads to inability to pump blood through the pulmonary circulation, uh, which decreases venous return to the left atrium, which decreases cardiac output, which leads to hypotension. So the heart is complicated in a lot of ways. I think to me, a lot of the complication comes from the EKGs and the different um, firing of the myocardial cells to create the impulses to contract. But when you're looking at it purely from a backup sort of situation, it's just like, it's just pressure. You have pressure in the lungs that's causing back up into the right ventricle, which is causing the right ventricle to have to work harder, which is causing less blood to be delivered to it because of the increased demand, then the right ventricle gets hurt, aka the ischemia. Ischemia is generally never a good thing. And when I say generally, I mean it's not a good thing. I guess technically in the cases of certain cancers, if you can somehow um, decrease the amount of blood flow to the cancer, they can't get nutrients, but that's a very niche uh, situation generally if you're going to have ischemia it's a bad thing and then the right ventricle doesn't work and then you can't pump blood to the rest of the body or you can't pump blood into the left side and then you fall apart and you just die I guess um, so I, I, I had no idea what they were getting at this is one of those things where the answer to the question is very far down the road and people who are really better at this than me are better at evaluating what's going on realizing that it's a pulmonary embolism and being like oh just kind of going back and following the steps it's something that you just get from doing practice questions more and obviously like just people who know more about this subject than i do 
I always wonder when I talk about these certain topics if anyone listening, like one, cares and two, understands what I'm talking about because I probably don't frame it in a way that's very easy to understand and I probably repeat myself over and over again. But a lot of the things that I really do like to talk about are things that are super easy to me and I just don't think that's as helpful for me to remember because I already do remember it. And my big problems with OB is that I don't want to spend my whole time talking about postmenopausal bleeding on this podcast. That's just not really the direction that I want it to go. Well, I think that's pretty much all I'm going to talk about today. I know I just jumped around to a bunch of different subjects, but it is fun for me to talk about stuff that has given me a hard time because it kind of helps it stick in my brain a little bit more. Um, there are non-medicine things that I want to go over, aka Monster Hunter, but I'm probably going to do that at a much later time. So my next episode, I don't know when that's going to be, but hopefully I'll be able to talk a little bit more about surgery stuff, maybe talk about some of the things that I've seen, but thanks for listening.